Housewife podcast. I'm Yolanda Norris-Clark, and this is the space where I share my thoughts on radical feminist mothering, free birth, family, spirit, outrageousness, and dissent, and so much more. (laughs) And I have a little bit of a cold right now, as you can tell, but I'm just going to do this anyway because I've been kind of fighting this flu thing for too long and my strategy for better or worse is to power ahead so here I am anyway I'm a a birth coach a birth educator and consultant and I wrote and produced along with my colleague Emily Saldea of the Free Birth Society the extensive comprehensive engaging and highly acclaimed online course the complete guide to free birth and the complete guide to free birth is possibly I think probably (laughs) the most in-depth birth education course available online and despite its title the complete guide to free birth is definitely not only for mothers who are planning free birth but is really applicable to any woman who's planning any kind of birth hospital home birth what have you uh, because the material is fundamentally rooted in the principles of evidence-based physiological birth and it's available at freebirthsociety.com. I have also just launched a brand new online program called Through the Veil. Through the Veil is a very unique pregnancy companion course that follows my own most recent pregnancy and birth and the arrival of our gorgeous little son Ignatius, who is now six months old. The course includes over 20 videos following the practical and emotional trajectory of my experience leading up to my recent birth. And it also includes the hour plus long video of Iggy's birth itself, which was a very, very, very intense family birth, free birth, during which my kids and my husband and a couple of friends were present. Um, And it was just a very, very raw, vulnerable, sometimes scary emergence. Uh, And I also include several videos about the postpartum recovery and healing experience as well. So it's really a fantastic program for any woman who feels ambivalent or afraid or unsure about her upcoming birth. And again, no matter what kind of birth she's planning, um, I think there's just so much there that's that's very applicable. And I think it uh, will offer a real source of comfort and solidarity, especially if you are unsure about any aspect of birth. And Through the Veil is also available at freebirthsociety.com. And if you're interested in my coaching services, either as a mother preparing for birth herself, or if you're a doula or midwife or birth worker, and you are looking for some guidance or coaching when it comes to launching your birth business or working through birth debriefs or navigating the politics of birth, I'm available for that as well. Now, how are you? I'm recording this five days before Christmas, which for my family, especially as we do celebrate Christmas in all the ways, is such a full time and sometimes an overwhelming time. I do have a very pluralistic approach to spirituality and religion and life, I suppose. And I really believe that the sacred and the profane not only can, but maybe must coexist, or that they inevitably coexist, whether we like it or not. (laughs) And 
I guess I just like to embrace that. I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm at peace with that. So yes, Christmas is so highly commercialized, but I think all the sheen and the excess um, provides a counterpoint and an opportunity for further introspection and critique as well, and for maybe even a more profound understanding of the more sacrosanct aspects of the season. So that's what I like to tell myself anyway. Christmas is also challenging for so many of us, and it's also that for me as well in many ways. I do find that I have a lot of mixed feelings about the season. Um, I have my own family baggage, and I think I'm continually in recovery from the habit or the learned behavior of placing overly high expectations on myself as far as decorating and gifting and sending Christmas cards and baking cookies and all of that stuff. And I know, of course, that the stuff doesn't really matter, but at the same time, I have such fond memories of the quite monumental pageantry and displays of tradition that my mom would enact. And I really have quite a strong urge to recreate that kind of magic for my kids. But I can also at the same time recognize, clever little me, that having a pristine house full of Christmas symbolism and, you know, perfectly baked cookies doesn't have a lot of value when the mom herself is losing her mind to achieve this and freaking out at everybody. <laughs> Not that that would ever be me, of course. So this year I have simplified considerably. Um, we have a, well, we did have a beautiful minimal tree, which we found in the woods on our property. We don't have that tree anymore. It's a very long story. I'm not going to talk about that here, but it's a little bit of a, a tragic story, but a near miss as well. So we're heading out tomorrow to get another Christmas tree. <laughs> Everything is fine. Um, but anyway, the first Christmas tree that we had, oh dear, I feel like I'm going to have to talk about this now. I don't really know. No, no, no. <laughs> The first Christmas tree that we had was uh, we'd cut from uh, uh, the woods on our property and we we chose it strategically so that the trees around it would actually be benefited from the space that its absence opened up in that particular stand and that lovely tree sat in our living room for a week before we decorated it, which I think happened on the 15th, which I think is the perfect time, but the kids were giving me a hard time about waiting that long and Horace especially decided to give me a well-meaning, I'm sure, critique for having delayed the decorating of the tree. And actually, it was quite funny. By way of an explanation for my apparent delinquency, he said, well, you're not exactly the best mother in the world, mom. <laughs> this was just so funny to me. And I, I laughed and laughed and I said, no, no, I'm not, am I? Truer words were never spoken. I am, however, the only mother you're ever going to have. So here we are. And so, yes, and here we are again, having to now replace that lovely and very kind of elegant, spare, very natural Christmas tree with another one. And I don't know if we're going to end up going back into the woods tomorrow or if we might just pick up a big, bushy, um, cultivated tree from the market. Because, again, I am still trying to please everybody. Mm, no, no, that's not quite true. I have definitely given up on that. But open to accommodating the ups and downs and uh, filling in the blanks when, when we need to. Uh, so I guess I think disappointing our children is maybe inevitable, but 
at least I'm at peace with that. I don't know. Having six kids at home has done so much to ensure that both my ego stay in check and that I don't get too bothered by excess criticism, I guess, or abundant criticism, I should say. Anyway, I love Christmas and I love the rituals and traditions and special foods and treats that I grew up with. And it is really, in the end, such a joy to see Christmas through our kids' eyes and to build new traditions into our family culture. So just a few days ago, the kids had their annual Christmas school play and performance. And uh, they were just so unbearably sweet and so very earnest. And they practiced the first Noel so diligently and they practiced their lines in the play. And it was all so, so delightful. But I had to attend the performance on my own because Lee was teaching the last pottery class of the season that evening. Um, And our pottery studio was just such a going concern this year, which is fantastic, but we'll have to plan things a little bit better next time. I don't know if you're curious about our pottery studio. It's clarkpottery.com, <laughs> um, mo- mostly for, for local Fredericktonians. Anyway, I was that mother who ended up having to grab her three-year-old under her arm and walk out with her kicking and screaming while wrangling a baby in the other arm. And all I could think was, thank goodness, uh, our kids go to a Catholic school and all the other families there were also, you know, parents of like six, seven, eight, nine, ten children in one family. So I think I was probably in the best possible company for a multi-kid breakdown. That's for sure. In general, though, I really have been quite focused this year on traditions that are easy and joyful. And one of my favorite aspects of the season is the music. I love Christmas music, Christmas carols and choral music and classical Christmas choir stuff. That's my favorite. But I do also love all the cheesy, poppy, jazzy stuff as well. Um, And I try to sit down at the piano for a few minutes every day and bang out some Christmas carols. And it's so fun because as soon as I sit down and play a few chords, the kids, um, you know, run out of the woodwork and clamber around and and gather to join in no matter what they've been doing so that's very sweet I love that and Christmas books and stories are also really important to me I have several books that I read to the kids every year and these are primarily stories that I grew up with my parents reading to me and these include The Cat on the Doverfell by Tommy de Paola which is just fantastic I love it and um the reading of this book immediately conjures my dad, who gave such a theatrical voice to the trolls in the story, especially the troll who tries to feed the sausage to the polar bear. It's become a classic line in our family. Anyway, you'll have to read it if you can find it. And I absolutely love as well The Box of Delights by John Macefield. And I think Macefield was writing around the uh, turn of the century or maybe the 20s. Uh, maybe it was the 20s and 30s. Anyway, he's um, dead, long gone now. But uh, this was another book that my father read to me and um, and I think reminded my dad of his childhood. I think he read it during his childhood as well. And he uh, he spent much of his childhood at boarding school and he also spent a few years of his childhood living in Britain. He lived in London for a couple of years and and he always felt such a strong attachment to the cultural artifacts of, of his origins as he saw it. So I love those books. And as a child, we also always read every year 
the book called Red Ranger Came Calling by Berkeley Breathed. And uh, Breathed was a, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he was an American writer. And I think he also was writing in the 30s and 40s, perhaps. So this is another classic, but I think it was reprinted in the 90s. And it's a fantastic uh, book. It's really one of the most magical stories, Christmas stories ever. I love it. And it really addresses the issue of Santa Claus in one of the sweetest and most delightful ways. And just yesterday, actually, Cosmo, our five-year-old, was looking at the book and turning over in his mind the implications of the kind of central mystery of the book and applying this to his life and his beliefs. And it's just so interesting to see all our kids going through the same kind of grappling with what this particular book offers in its you know profound moral story and and also the just the general grappling that that we all do with uh, with all of these kind of paradoxical um, issues of, of life so this year with with our kids in particular I've been very clear that Santa Claus is going to be bringing only a very minimal um, uh, selection and and an ephemeral, if possible, selection of gifts. Not only because we just have so much and we are so so lucky, and there's really very little that my kids need or or frankly desire, but also because we are all flying to the Dominican Republic on the first of January, and we will be living there for two months. And I'm a little bit terrified uh, by this, but also very thrilled. It's going to be a really exciting adventure for all of us. And uh, I'm there primarily to work. So I'm meeting up with, again, Emily Saldea of the Free Birth Society to complete the development of the curriculum for our upcoming Radical Birthkeeper School, which, wow, it is such an incredible program already, even as we're still working on it. And I'm so excited about it. I'm so proud of it. There's really nothing like it out there in terms of birth work education. It's just such a beautiful and effective integration of the ancient wisdom model of women's healing traditions with the evidence-based physiology and chemistry of birth along with the business and marketing skills required to excel both in kind of the digital age and to establish yourself as the respected wise woman of your community. So it includes a very specific step-by-step roadmap for planning, launching, and maintaining your business over time. And Emily and I are going to be taking our students right into the workings of our own businesses and to dissect really how we show up for our clients and our communities, both locally and online, and really openly talking about the mistakes that we've made in our businesses as well so that you can or our students can learn from our missteps. And basically, we'll be workshopping our students' businesses from conception to launch while at the same time we teach the tools of conscious leadership and the physiology of birth and the practicalities of holding space during birth and and um, meeting our clients at every stage of the process. So I just could not be more thrilled. It's one of the, it's, it's it really has been a thrilling process for me to uh, build this course with Emily because this is my life's work. This is what I have been immersed in for so long. And it's been quite the revelation to kind of 
be able to kind of integrate for myself just how much uh, I've learned over the years and to be able to share that with, with others is going to be just so exciting. And it's, it's one of the, my kind of life projects that I really felt a truly um, just delightful, full body yes about. So I, I just can't wait. Um, so yeah. Uh, oh, and, and just a couple of quick things about that too. We're, we're, we're going to be offering it as both a live online experience for women who don't have the opportunity to travel, but we're also doing a live in-person version in Pagosa Springs, Colorado in the winter of 2020. So there are going to be lots of options for engaging with it. So that's one of the big projects I'll be working on in the Dominican Republic. And I'll also be doing work on my master's thesis while we're there, which is focused on some of the philosophical questions that come up around the issue of surrogacy, which I'm often talking about online and uh, on Instagram. Um, by the way, if you happen to be there, I am at Baha's wife. And uh, yeah, I'll also be continuing to work on the editing of my book, which has been such slow going, mostly because I've had to shift focus to the Radical Birthkeeper School, which is just happens to be taking immediate precedence. But this is all okay, because important things take time, and life takes time. And I guess more specifically, everything takes the time that it takes. <laughs> so here I am with that right in the thick of it. Now, I'm quite excited about this particular podcast episode, but I'm also a little scared, to be honest, because I'm about to tackle one of the most controversial topics I have ever given voice to. <laughs> That's right. This is a very sensitive issue, a very polarizing issue. So just before I really launch into it, I really want to ask anyone who's listening to, please try to hear what I'm about to say in the spirit of the season, and know that ultimately I am 100% open to the full spectrum of approaches and opinions on this matter, and I want to emphasize that the way I go about navigating this subject is in no way a comment on your parenting choices, which may be quite different than mine in this particular area or in any area. Uh, and I mean, obviously, I have a preference because I've made a choice to approach this in the way that I do, but uh, it's completely okay for others to feel differently. And I truly believe that we really can all get along, especially when it comes to this subject. Are you on the edge of your seats? I bet you are. All right, then. This is my reading of an older essay of mine, and actually, I will post the text to my blog at freebirth.ca if you'd like to go back and read it or link out to it. And this essay, when I originally published it quite a few years ago, it actually sparked some of the most outrageous hate mail that I've ever received. And I actually mean like swear words and, and threats. Uh, this essay caused several people whom I at one point counted among my friends to unfriend me on social media and to stop talking to me in real life. And it's also sparked lengthy debates on the topic uh, in some online spaces, which I actually find quite flattering and hilarious and, and interesting. So the essay, believe it or not, is called, Do You Lie to Your Kids About Santa Claus? 
Now I have updated it and edited it just a tiny little bit since I first published it. Um, I think it was you know, eight or nine or maybe even ten years ago, but I figured it would be fun to read it here on the podcast because I still get emails every year from mothers who are asking that I republish it. So it's kind of become one of my my Christmas classics. <laughs> so here we go. I won't lie to my kids about Santa. They're going to get the straight-up truth. As a rule, as much as it is humanly possible, I don't lie to my kids at all. They know it when I'm sad. They know when I feel anxious or stressed out. They know where babies come from. And they're generally in tune with and aware of the world around them. Of course, Parenting is a balancing act, and I certainly don't expose them to anything I don't think they're ready for, as much as I can help it. And while I strive to be open and emotionally available and truthful, I also protect them from pain and trauma to a degree, and from certain challenges that they will nonetheless inevitably have to face at some point. I am, I think, I hope, a responsible gatekeeper. And by the same token, I won't lie to them about Santa Claus. Just as my own parents did with me, I will explain to my children that Santa Claus is absolutely, unequivocally, completely real. As real as real can be. As real as anything can be. Santa Claus is a magical spirit, a saintly, pagany, Christiany, and secular spirit of generosity, kindness, goodwill, and the protection of children. He is both the embodiment and the intangible symbol of comfort, safety, magic, the mysteries of winter, and of hope and warmth in the darkness. Santa will arrive at our house on Christmas Eve, after the children are snug in their beds, with visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads, and he will eat up most of the shortbread and milk that we set out for him and he will leave a letter for each of our children describing and celebrating their talents, gifts, and their loveliness, and offering wishes for a new year filled with joy, light, energy, and peace. Along with the letter, he'll leave a stocking full of oranges, pomegranates, and a few special items, some useful gifts, a snorkeling flashlight perhaps, a couple of small, interesting, or lovely things for each member of our family, some chocolates and treats, and Santa also usually leaves one larger, more significant present for each child, unwrapped, of course. Santa doesn't have time to wrap presents. And my favorite thing of all, for me anyway, is that his elves always magically clean the house, which I'm especially pleased with. Thank you, Santa. Every year my kids anticipate the arrival of Santa Claus, knowing that no matter how irritated I their mother might have been with them at times over the year, that Santa loves and cares for all children, no matter who they are or what they've done, and deeply appreciates and upholds the fact that every kid is fundamentally right, good, and deserving, even while his gifts often vary from family to family. Also a mystery. Do I know how Santa physically maneuvers through every chimney? Or how he manifests his arrival for children who live in tenements, tents, or churches? Nope, not really. Not for me to say. I do help Santa out, though, as much as I can when it comes to our own home. 
I also do my best to help him out in the context of our community, in the form of giving to the food bank, re-gifting new, unused, and also gently used items from our home, and donating to various charities, according to my ability. Santa can't do it all on his own, that's for sure. But if anything, my appreciation for and belief in Santa has, over the years, grown. I loved Santa as a child, and even as I moved from the sensory, emotive, early years into the inquisitive and even doubtful preteen stage, during which I questioned everything with passion, Santa Claus felt safe and sacred, and I can recall the very gradual way that I integrated my understanding of how Santa works into my consciousness. There was never any talk about the ins and outs of how Santa Claus organized the implementation of his yearly monumental task. There was no event during which my parents sat me down and told me the truth. The truth, as I saw it then, and as I see it now more than ever, is that Santa Claus is palpably real, and made real through us, with us, and in us, by the awesome power of narrative. Very much like Jesus. Life isn't, I'm afraid, fact. Life isn't science. Life is empirical ambiguity. Life is nuance. This is the true gift. Reality is constant uncertainty and fluctuation, and if I have learned anything, it is that Santa Claus might be one of the only things that's really real in this world of fracture, dis-ease, unrest, and constant change. I deeply hope, and see no reason to doubt, and in fact see much evidence in favor of the possibility, that my children's faith in Santa will transition seamlessly, as it did for me, from the literal belief in a strange elf who delivers gifts across the globe, to the metaphorical and incorporeal knowing that his spirit is present in anyone who chooses to engage with it, and that we may actually decide to take responsibility for doing so. I know for a fact, because I've done so, that if I were to ask my 69-year-old mother today whether or not Santa Claus is real, she would look at me, clear-eyed, and say, Of course he's real, Yolanda. Why on earth are you asking me such a silly question? I was an extremely privileged child, in all ways. That said, though, Christmas wasn't by any stretch a consumerist extravaganza in our house. It was never about presents or consumption. My most memorable and very favorite Christmas present ever was from Santa, and it was a life jacket. My little sister and I both got one to wear on canoe trips in the spring and summer. It's hard to describe the thrill of seeing those life jackets under the tree. I think they were presented being worn with two teddy bears, and Alex and I put on those life jackets over our pajamas, and we wore them for the duration of that Christmas day. In the family my husband and I have created, we unabashedly revel in and celebrate the many commercial representations of Santa Claus that we see out and about, while at the very same time we actively pursue a Christmas experience that focuses not on corporate junk, but on family togetherness, delicious traditional foods, Christmas carols, songs, stories, giving, and also my unapologetically progressive you very much, adaptation of the Christmas story, which focuses on the beauty and perfection of, obviously, free birth. 
Jesus was an anarchist, pacifist freak who believed in the equality of all people and in the rights of women and children in particular. And his primary example, other than God, was his similarly radical, strong, powerful mum, Mary, a pregnant teen like I once was, who made a choice to listen to the ethereal message she perceived and to take up the challenge of mothering an exceptional child, the first aspect of which was giving birth to him in a barn of all places, under the stars and under their own star. This is, of course, one of the most stunningly lovely free birth stories ever, but also such a powerful account of faith in general, faith both in the body and in our connection to the divine. I believe profoundly that, like Jesus, every child is born encircled by a halo of fundamental, universal adoration, whoever they are. Birth is always miraculous, beautiful, holy, and also normal, I think. Babies can be born safely in barns and stables and churches and cabins. Birth is precious and wonderful, and we are all children who need and warrant unconditional love. And Christmas is just such a wonderful time. And there's Santa Claus, who, for me, and I know this probably sounds, or maybe is, sacrilegious, Santa Claus is an extension of the good that I can find present in the story of this Son of God, in whose image we are, as it's said, created too. And I can also happily admit that, laid out in these terms, Christmas in 2019 sounds maybe quite complicated and contrived, and probably sounds especially so for those who don't share or follow the same traditions, or who just simply don't share my perspective. And again, I wholeheartedly understand and accept that. That said, though, the suggestion that I am lying to my children in asserting my totally authentic conviction that Santa Claus is real is, I think, a bit preposterous and sad. I'm actually very proud to be able to offer my relatively insignificant, all told, services as a helper to Santa Claus on Christmas Eve, and that does nothing to mitigate my abiding faith in the transformative quality of the story. In fact, my own meager involvement bolsters my own faith. I do a little organizing, a tiny bit of channeling, and the rest, really, is up to him. But the magic of the entirety of it really does feed my soul, too. It's unfortunate that there are so many smug, self-righteous, literal and almost legalistic interpretations of this issue, so many articles written, especially lately, on the subject of navigating the supposed lie that is Santa Claus, and I wonder if this isn't related somehow to our current cultural obsession with identity and the moral certainty around it and the bizarrely normalized delusions we are increasingly mandated to validate in others. Maybe Santa Claus is a stand-in for the truth-telling that we are, as a culture, failing to do when it comes to issues that are, in my view, that much more important to debunk. And I can't help but think that this is such an interesting reversal, that it is supposedly traumatizing for children to have to grapple with the realness or intangibility of Santa Claus, yet be automatically indoctrinated into certain other belief systems that I actually think are 
perhaps far less plausible than even the most literal interpretation of Santa, to the point that many of us are compelled to, I think, even lie publicly in order to uphold the mental and intellectual contortions required by the woke left. Anyway, I digress just a little bit there. <laughs> In fact, I couldn't care less that some other parents may decide to tell their children that Santa Claus is a story, a myth, or a lie. This shouldn't affect my kids, even when they do encounter one of those resolutely supercilious children whose parents have imbued them with a stranglehold on accuracy and rightness. And for the record, my children can also be very, very supercilious around other topics. So, <laughs> no real judgment there either. All I can do is hope that my kids have been inoculated against such rigidity by my own radical truth-telling. I myself remember coming home one day from school to tell my mother that Sarah or Jenny had told me that Santa isn't real. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, said Mum. But don't feel too bad for Sarah and Jenny. We know that Santa is as real as you can imagine. Alas, lately, Horace, our 11-year-old, Treva, our 9-year-old, and Felix, who's only seven, have all come to me to say that they think I am Santa Claus. And I just can't lie to them. So I tell them, of course I'm not Santa Claus. I'm your mother, your dependably mediocre, but nonetheless devoted mother. And they roll their eyes and they reply with, we know you're Santa Claus, Mum. Just say it. Just admit it. And then, of course, I have to tell them that I will admit to nothing of the sort, and they roll their eyes again, and then they eventually give up. And yet, Xanthi, who's three years old, has, in the past couple of weeks, been marching around the house and approaching her older siblings and me and Lee and saying with heartbreaking confidence, Mom, Treva, Santa Claus is real. And to their credit, Xanthi's older siblings smile back at her and say, He sure is, Zan. My children's varying states of skepticism aside, I do hope that they will grow up to be adults who can differentiate between truth and fact, and who will have the ability to appreciate the profound authenticity of myth and story that tell of and create magic, generosity, and transformation. And I truly hope that whatever your take on Christmas, or not Christmas, or Santa Claus, or Jesus, or God, or atheism, or agnosticism, or any of the deities, religions, or belief systems, that you have a love-filled, joyous season. Love, yo. <laughs> Talk to you later.